Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. This is a very special show for me today. Monica Woolsey, um, I have been stalking her <laughs> for many years. Um, she is probably the, the most informational person I know for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, she wears many hats. Uh, she's the founder and president of After the Diet. Um, she helps people overcome the eating issues that go along with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, she is an advocate. She is. Um, she just has been such an enormous resource for me, and I wanted to bring her to you. So here we are, Monica Wolsey. Insist. How are you? I'm great this evening. How are you, Marianne? I'm good. I'm glad I finally have you back on. Well, you yeah, know, I'm think, excited. You know, I think a lot of parents and a lot of women, because, you know, the moms out there need to be listening to this too, um, are really not familiar with, um, you know, how polycystic ovarian syndrome can really present in so many different ways. And with our special needs kids, we have so much unraveling to do. And oftentimes I think it's an incidental finding, but it's a shame that it would have to be an incidental finding. It infuriates me that a full endocrine workup is not something that's included in all um, assessments of uh, teenagers with um, anxiety and depression. So um, why don't you tell us first what polycystic ovarian syndrome is? Well, it's the number one endocrine disorder in women, and in adult women it's the leading cause of infertility. When I started working um, in this specialty about 10, 15 years ago, they estimated that one in 10 women had it, and in the last year that has doubled to one in five women, so it's very, very common. Um, probably the, the stereotypical presentation that you would see is someone who has um, gained weight primarily around the abdomen. They're more apple-shaped than pear-shaped. But there's actually a pretty high percentage of women with PCOS who are not obese, so I don't like to use that as the thing that sets off your red flag if you're a practitioner. Um, it's, in teenagers, uh, it often starts with acne. Um, that's the first sign. Um, it could be mood swings. Um, and I, it's for some reason in uh, the teens that I have seen, the mood swings seem to be more profound than in adults, and I've had a couple of suicidal teenagers. So it's something to not just blow off or just assume that it's hormones. If you see that, you really start need to start looking at other things. Um, in facial hair, uh, there's a, oftentimes a high testosterone level in these women. So a lot of the symptoms are related to that. Um, yes. Women who, who uh, women and teenage girls who try and lose weight find that it doesn't come off that easily, and they may spend hours in the gym and not see any changes. Um, we see irregular menstrual cycles. Uh, sleep disorders are very common, um, and if it progresses um, as you uh, get into it, go into adulthood, infertility, and then pass that toward menopause, it can be metabolic syndrome. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, I want to just back up with something you said. You said that there's been a, a, a twofold rise. I mean, now it's one in five. Why, what do you account that rise to? Is it the, our diets or is it, um, um, you know, medications? Well, what would be causing us that significant rise? And, and also state what percentage of those one in five suffer from anxiety and depression because that's really startling. Uh, well, the, to answer your first question, I think part of the change is that we're just recognizing it. 
And mm-hmm. I think actually the advent of the Internet where people are able to go in and Google their symptoms and come back with something. And I find that a lot of women in diagnosis where, you know, t- 10 years ago that wasn't how we managed our own health care. Um, but I also think that there have been changes um, in our environment and in our diet and our food supply that have sped up that process as well. Um, PCOS is an inflammatory disorder, so it would fall in the same lines of heart disease, diabetes. It is a pre-diabetic um, syndrome, and all of the incidences of all of those are going up over time, so it would be natural that PCOS would follow. Right, and it's interesting what you said before about the weight, that, you know, that was basically, um, you know, one of the first things that people looked at, but I have two daughters with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I have one that weighs 97 pounds, and I have one that weighs 180 pounds. And just yesterday at the pediatrician, and I said, well, you know, she has polycystic ovarian. She goes, oh, that's impossible. You know, that she doesn't fit the profile. She doesn't have acne, and she's not overweight. And I just was like, you've got to be kidding, <laughs> you know, um, because that's how so many girls are, fall between the cracks. That's probably one of the most common search words bringing people into our blog because we're one of the few places that write about that, that um, you can be lean and you and still have PCOS because it's about inflammation. It's and, and some people who have, have inflammatory diseases, they gain weight if that's what their DNA is programmed to do. But there are a lot of people who don't gain weight and still have inflammatory diseases. They have arthritis, they have asthma, they have other things going on. Right. And, you know, you brought up before about, um, you know, getting diagnosed. And I think it is easier getting diagnosed now. But it is challenging for the practitioners. So from from that aspect, you know, what would you say? If I'm talking to practitioners? No, I'm saying as far as, um, you know, there are some challenges that the practitioners face in treating this disorder and diagnosing the disorder. Talk about this because I think uh, women, because it can take them so long to become diagnosed, they blame the doctors. And I think the doctors oftentimes are caught in a system that doesn't make it easy for them to work with a, um, a disease that has so many different ways of expressing itself. Um, so we have a very compartmentalized healthcare system, and a very typical scenario that I see is someone goes in, a teenage goes in, teenager goes into the dermatologist for her acne, and the most simple, easiest thing that a dermatologist can do in, in, in what looks like a simple case is to write a script for birth control pills. And that may help initially, but in a lot of ways it shoves the, the syndrome under the rug and gives it years to fester. And everything may look okay until this teenager turns 25 or 30 and goes off the pill and wants to have a baby, and that's when she realizes that one of the things that she may have done well to not do was to go on that birth control as a Teenager, but if you talk to dermatologists, a lot of them will say, "Hey, I know that that probably wasn't what I should have done, but I really don't know how to deal with the rest of it, and this is the easiest thing for me to do." Um, you know, and, and that's interesting. That. Also, yeah, because it's a quality of life issue. Sometimes, um, I know for one of my daughters, <clears throat> no medications, no psychiatric medications worked. We tried everything; nothing worked, and I kept saying, "She has an endocrine disorder. Why is nobody treating the endocrine disorder?" And um, finally, one doctor put her on the birth control, put her on Yaz, and uh, she has not had one meltdown or one rage in three years since she started it. So for her, it was a quality of life issue. But, you know, now I am alarmed, thinking, wow, maybe this isn't the wrong thing to do. Every case is different, and that may work well for her, but I would definitely be monitoring her other parameters as well to make sure that 
you know, the inflammation is being managed at, at the same time that the quality of life is being improved. Um, and even among endocrine physicians, um, I ran across a real interesting study several years ago. They actually looked at how different physicians treat and manage PCOS. And among in endocrinology, there are separate, several subspecialties. There's reproductive endocrinology, there's diabetology, there's thyroid. And they found that the reproductive endocrinologists treated PCOS very differently than the diabetic specialists did because they have this very different goals. The repro docs, are, are, you're paying them to give you a baby. And the diabetic docs, you're paying them to help control your blood sugar. So they use completely different tests. They use completely different treatments, completely different answers for the very same syndrome. Um, and it's almost like they're just putting Band-Aids on the, the thing that they have the lenses on, on to see, and they just assume that somebody else is going to take care of the rest at some point. Right. And so the inflammation that you, that you talk about, how would somebody address the inflammation? Um. You know, inflammation is an interesting thing, and we we have a lot of studies talking about how to treat inflammation when it is arthritis or when it's asthma or when it's diabetes. But with PCOS, we're still kind of treating the target or the end organs rather than the place where our work at, at INSYST is suggesting that it may be starting. Um, and there's very little information out there about inflammation in the brain and nervous system, which is where I personally think PCOS gets its start. Um, right. And, right. Yeah, and the way that I describe it to women who have the disease is that it's almost like rust on a car. And if you look at a car and, and it has had years and years of exposure to an environmental influence that, that is breaking it down and it has no way of building itself back up, eventually you get holes in that car. And that same thing happens in your brain and nervous system with, infl- with an inflammatory process or an oxidative process. And so what we, we try and do it insist is, is work with different things that we know to really help r- rebuild and repair that tissue it's going to constantly be broken down every day. That's just a part of being human. But the way that we live and the way that we eat and the way that we don't sleep in our society is constantly fueling the fire in the wrong direction. So um, we work with four things. We work with diet, activity, sleep hygiene, and stress management. That's, and that's our four-pronged approach. And another thing before we go into the approach, because I do want you to uh-huh. go into detail with this, um, I just wanted to back up a little bit because a, a lot of the parents that listen to my show have um, daughters that have um, different mood disorders. And mood disorders are oftentimes treated with neuroleptics. I, I'm hearing a, a clicking. I'm hoping that it's not um, airing. If it is, I apologize. I have no idea what it is. But, um, you know, a lot of um, these teenagers are put on neuroleptics or anticonvulsants used to stabilize mood. And, um, you know, they really need to be aware that these medications do affect the hormones and do um, can lead to polycystic ovarian syndrome. Is that correct? Absolutely. The one that's been the most um, probably extensively researched is Depakote, which is right. it's used for several things, primarily for is it epilepsy. Epilepsy. But it's also, right. Yeah, it's also used for bipolar disorder and migraine headaches as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they, if you go into PubMed, the National Library of Medicine database, you will see that Depakote has been specifically shown to to provoke and cause PCOS. And when you remove the Depakote, the PCOS subsides. Um, there are hosts oh, okay. of a whole host of other 
Yeah, there are a whole host of other medications that are used to manage the um, the neuropsychiatric disorders that have not been researched as extensively, but I have seen some specific um, things like 60-pound weight gain, gain in a month with some of the, especially the um, anti-schizophrenic, medi- anti-psychotic medications. The, the, the neuroleptics, the, uh, neuroleptics, the Risperdal, yeah. um, yeah, Saracol, all of those, yeah. Forth, yeah. And each one of them is slightly different, um, and each person right. responds slightly different. And sometimes I, you know, I do think that that there is a need for those medications. But if you Absolutely. ever are placed on a medication like that, and all of a sudden you start to gain weight, it's real important to go into the doctor because there may be a diabetic state. I've seen some studies where some some people develop diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a deadly condition being on these right. medications. Your cholesterol because can I think go that- up. Right, and I think what happens is oftentimes, um, you know, parents are forewarned that there can be a significant weight gain. And so we just sort of assume that the weight gain is just part and parcel and it's just innocent, not innocent, but it's just weight gain. Um, but it is very important because if it does develop into the polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, and it does, which is a precursor for a lot of people for diabetes, um, you know, it has to be watched. I think that's why metformin is such a popular drug um, to treat polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yeah, it is. And and with the, some of these other medications, I have found that one of the main reasons that women don't like to take the drugs and they don't comply is because they're afraid of the weight gain or they've heard that the weight is going to to increase. And right. we have such a weight-conscious society that that's the worst possible thing you want to hear is that you have to be on a medication that's going to cause weight gain. Right, and I think that's also why a lot of these girls um, that have the anxiety, the depression, the mood, and you know, as you said, they can be significant from polycystic ovarian syndrome. I mean, I'm telling you for a fact, they can be really very significant. Um, significant, and it's fast. And I hear that over and over again. You know, one absolutely. day I weighed this, and then you know, two months later, I was 40 pounds heavier, and I wasn't doing anything different. And that's your red flag that you've got a hormone problem going on. Right. And and what oftentimes happens is, well, you know, she's depressed and she's stressed out because she's gained so much weight. And that's not the case. It's you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? If the anxiety and the depression didn't come from the weight gain. It came from the cause of the weight gain, um, and that's something that I that just really gets to me because so many of these girls, um, you know, if you look at them, they have clear physical signs of endocrine disease, of neuroendocrine disease, of polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it's not addressed when you know they're giving given medications. And listen, I am pro-medication, and as far as the medications that we just mentioned before, it's a quality of life issue. There are girls that must be on these medications to stay, to stay calm and to stay safe, um, but parents need to know that they also have to address the endocrine issues that are going to come with it. Right, and and it's real important, I think, we can at being on the outside looking in and your daughter's miserable and all you want is for her to feel better, um, and and you can think to yourself, well, she must feel this way because she looks this way, or she because she she's gained this weight, or she's got this horrible acne. And if you right. if if you work with that mindset, and then the weight comes off, or the acne's cleared, and the anxiety hasn't gone away, then you've backed yourself into a corner. And it's real important mm-hmm. to just recognize that anxiety is anxiety, and sometimes we don't have a concrete or an environmental explanation for it, and it is just there. Um, and and it's at the core to, of almost everything that I deal with on on this show. Anxiety really is at the core. 
Yeah, and, and helping helping to understand. And something that I think is really interesting about women with PCOS is one of the positive sides of it is that these women are oftentimes very creative, very passionate, very sensitive women. But I think it, it's that very thing that is related to the anxiety because they're just so much more responsive to environmental input, even how a shirt feels against their skin, and, and just are almost overstimulated the way that our world works to the point where it begins to make them sick. Right, it's, it's it's sensory overload. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I want to just um, discuss ages here because we keep saying the word teens, and I think I want to be very clear that we're also talking about tweens. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, because I don't want people to think sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. You know, whatever. I mean, and yes, absolutely in that group. I can tell you, my children, it was ten that I saw. Well, the, yeah, so, it, it's, it's when they start to hit um, their first period or that age, and that age has dropped over the last 20 years. I know. By yeah, about 10 yeah. years. And, again, that's because there are hormone imbalances going on that are affecting that. But, yeah, as soon as they start heading to that point where they're starting to develop and, and they may not have a menstrual cycle because the PCOS can affect that, but they may have all the other characteristics suggesting that hormones are starting to manifest. Right. And, you know, also... Um, you know, missed periods and, um, you know, amenorrhea, I mean, the periods just stop, you know, and, you know, you can be told, like I was told, oh, well, that's normal, it could take years to regulate, and it was years lost, um, you yeah. know, to go three years and then just say, oh, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. It was a big deal. So when you do have a, a child that it could be even in her early teens, if she doesn't um, start to get on a regular cycle, um, you know, within the first year, you know, you should have it checked out. Yeah, and some women, it's the or, or teens, it's the other direction. They may have a period that doesn't stop, exactly. and that can be really, real traumatizing for a young girl who's never had a period, and all of a sudden it's there, and it doesn't go away for a month, two, or three. So, if any kind of irregularity, if it doesn't look like your daughter's menstruating, but she's had, she's developed all the other signs that she's a teenager and, and, and heading toward adulthood, it, it definitely merits getting checked out. Right. Well, now, Monica, I want to let you just get the information out because INSIST is something very special. Um, you know, what you've created is just incredible. As I said, it's an, it's my go-to resource. So um, tell the parents what INSIST is, what your beliefs are, and how you're helping teenagers and young women cope with this because fertility is a big problem. Uh, and what is the percentage of people that have um, girls that have polycystic that will go on to have problems conceiving? You know that particular statistic eludes me. I'm, I wish I had it for you, but I know it, it's pretty high. And and the thing that can happen if you have a physician who's not sensitive, and I've heard this over and over, is a 14-year-old girl gets diagnosed with PCOS, and the doctor says, well, it can say something like, well, it doesn't really mean anything except that you might not be able to have children when you get older. You know, and, and for a 14-year-old to hear that, that can be devastating. She probably hadn't even thought about having kids until someone brought it up to her. And, you know, all, so we just have to be really sensitive about how we deal with anything doing with hormones and women's health and reproduction, especially when we're dealing with, with um, tweens and teens who may not be developmentally at a point where they're entirely comfortable with these topics in order to be able to Well, what happens, what happens with the ovaries? Because these aren't like ovarian cysts. These are follicles, am I correct? Yes. Um, what happens is that women with PCOS don't ovulate. And so the the eggs that should have been released with ovulation, they stay in the ovaries and they, they harden and they look like cysts. 
um, and they can grow and they can and they can grow to be pretty large in size and contort the size of the ovary. Um, and if you get a sonogram and you look at that picture on a sonogram, it's a classic sign. It's called a string of pearls. The ovaries for some or the egg, the um, the follicles or the the uh, cysts tend to line up along the edge of the ovary and they look like a mm-hmm. string of pearls. But you don't have to have that to have polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, and the older you are, the less likely that is that will show up because a lot of those cysts will burst over time, so they won't be there to show up. And that um, is so painful. That is oh. so painful when they burst. My daughter just had two of them burst last month. She was in agony. They can burst, and the other thing that can happen is that ovary is getting bigger and having a harder time fitting in the space where it is. It can kind of twist and contort on itself and cut off its own circulation. So there are different kinds mm-hmm. of pain. There's pain with ovulation. Any kind of bloating, cramping, abdominal pain that seems unusual could be another symptom of PCOS. Right. And is that are these dangerous? Because I don't want to scare people, um, you know, because... They are going to have discomfort. I don't want to go on record saying that it's not, but, you know, I've never heard of anyone dying of one of these. It's just incredibly painful, and you think you're going to die. Um, And if you don't take care of it, it can progress into things that are worse. So you definitely want to make sure that somebody's monitoring that. Um, And and, um, the other two symptoms, if you're looking at the Rotterdam criteria, is is the more standard one. There are three different things. One, you have to have two of of the three following. One is an irregular menstrual cycle for, I think it's at least three months, um, and or testosterone um, um, indications that your testosterone is high. That could be acne. It could be facial hair. It could be male pattern baldness. It doesn't have to be a blood test. And then the third one is the sonogram. So two of those three, if you have those, then you very likely have PCOS right. if you can get a diagnosis. So then you couldn't have estrogen dominance and have polycystic ovarian syndrome, though? Well, you can. You can. Right, because that um, that, that would be really... <laughs> yeah, um, and the, we actually do have quite a few women who have that, and what I'm interested to know is um, if that estrogen dominance is, is from... Um, the environment and the estrogens in the environment because there are so many different types of estrogen. Um, True. And that, that that could be a whole other show, you know, why are these environmental estrogens so important to, to hormones? But um, that they're starting to link things like BPA and plastics to hormone disorders and to mood disorders um, right. and pesticides. And I understand and, even the hormones that are put in the animals that we eat. Absolutely. Um, you know, I just so saw I mean, a, listen, some, I mean, the, I had Dr. Sears on. Um, he's uh, Dr. Barry Sears from the Zone Diet. Uh-huh. And he had basically said that if you look at the progression of all of the, a lot of these um, special needs children's problems, if you, if, if you look back to when these things really started to progress and you go back to the changes in the way people ate, it tells you a lot. Uh, you know, he said, if your great-grandmother didn't eat it, you shouldn't be eating it, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. he said, and that would make a lot of these kids feel a lot better. There's a lot of stuff out there that I don't even call food that people eat. It's just so processed. Yeah, I know. It's and, in my house, I know. <laughs> it's, and it's the simpler, the better, you know, the more fruits and vegetables. And I and Dr. Sears' diet, actually, is, is very similar to the one that we would recommend for PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just getting the omega-3s in the diet and the seafood in the diet, but getting all of the pro-inflammatory oils out of the diet. 
um, and they're very easy to remember because they all begin with the letters S and C. Um, safflower, sunflower, soybean, sesame, corn, cotton seed, and canola would be the exception to that. But all of those tend to to take away the power that the omega threes have in the diet. Really? And so, okay. Yes. Yes, and so if you start reading your labels and start looking at what's in some of these processed foods, even if it's coming from Whole Foods, um, those oils are very common because they're cheap to process with. And and things like salad dressing are primarily made with soybean oil. Unless you're looking, um, I think Annie's Naturals is a brand, Drew's Naturals is a brand, um, Brianna's, those are all primarily made with either olive or canola, depending on the flavor. But chips... um, those kinds of things, they all have the wrong kind of oils in them. Okay. So now what, um, I know that you believe, as, as you know, I believe uh-huh. also, that this is a neuroendocrine disease, a neurocognitive uh-huh. disorder. Um, so why don't you tell us how um, the brain is involved in all of this? Because, you know, this this is the involves the limbic system. So why don't you explain how it, the brain is involved and then tell us what um, INSYST recommends. Oh, okay. Well, the brain it, it controls. Excuse me. It controls everything. So it starts in the brain and it trickles down. And so hormones are primarily controlled by the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, and um, they seem to be parts of the brain that are highly susceptible to inflammatory processes. Um, and those are the parts of the brain that regulate mood. They regulate thyroid growth hormone, um, reproductive hormones, um, and then cortisol and stress. So if your brain is not working, then your hypothalamus is not working. Everything downstream is not going to work. And all of the treatments that we've been talking about thus far tend to work on the target organs. They work on the pancreas. They work on um, the cholesterol. They work on the blood sugar. But they don't really work where the problem got started. So you can take those medications and they'll work for a while. But as the brain is gradually losing the ability to do what it's supposed to do, you you never go on metformin and gradually need less. You always need more. <clears throat> Same mm-hmm. with things like Lipitor. It, and what that tells you is that it's managing the symptom, but it's not fixing the problem. And so right. what we um, are trying to work on at Insist is really looking at what the the brain the brain's ideal diet is. And lucky for all of you listening, it's no different than what your heart needs. The Mediterranean, I call it an aggressive Mediterranean diet. So it's mm-hmm. really high in in omega-3s, fish, the uh, dark green leafy vegetables, um, the low glycemic grains. It's higher in protein than the average diet. Um, We do recommend a high-protein snack at night because it seems to help regulate blood sugar in the middle of the night and and encourage sleep to to be a little bit more restful. Um, And we look at all of the dark, rich colored fruits and vegetables for their antioxidants because the brain is such a highly oxidative organ. And everything is really driven around making sure that that brain is fueled in the way that it needs because it's almost like a Ferrari as far as organs go in our body. We need to fuel it like that and then give it all the things that it needs to do all the repair work like the you know, the deep, rich purple foods and the dark green foods and the yellows and the reds that oftentimes people with blood sugar problems are afraid to eat because they've been told they're too high in sugar. Right. So... Really just showing them, and that's where working with a dietitian who kind of gets this, they can show you, you know, a meal plan or patterns or give you some ideas for things that you can fix in your own kitchen that aren't real time-consuming but would fit kind of the parameters that we are finding work. Do you, I know the Mediterranean diet, I mean, it's like I can't go anywhere um, and not find, and not see that. So 
um, that really must be really a very good plan for a lot of a lot of people with a lot of different uh, you know health issues. But on your website, um, do you have any of the diets and recommendations? And why don't you give us your website? Um, our website is www.incyst.com. Um, we have, you know, everybody's, like I said earlier in the show, everybody's PCOS is a little bit different, and so I, I don't do a blanket recommendation, but, you know, really looking at your proteins, um, we find that oftentimes that women come to us after they've had some kind of a span in their life where they were vegan, but they weren't doing it well, and that created a lingering imbalance that we, we try and help them to fix. And I mentioned just before going on air that food sensitivities can be an issue. And um, that can cause an inflammatory state that gets the ball rolling. So we have ways of kind of doing questions and, and, and digging a little deeper to see if that might be an issue. Um, we're really looking for what the source of the inflammation was, if it was poor stress management, if it was teenagers have a tendency to want to stay up really late at night, and nighttime is when a lot of your antioxidant activity is going on in the brain. So really working on on good sleep patterns in addition to all the diet that, that I just mentioned can be very helpful. Well, you know, I think there are a lot of um, young teenagers and tweens out there that have this that are just um, suffering and have no idea why. And it's really important for parents to, you know, insist on an endocrine evaluation. Um, you know, it's not it's not like a gynecological exam. Um, it's blood work. It's sitting down. Um, and it's really, it's very important, especially if your child is having mood swings, anxiety, and there's really no other explanation for it. Yeah, and one, one thing I, I forgot to mention, that this is actually one of our big goals for 2012 to work on, is to get more awareness out about this. There's a really strong correlation between PCOS and bulimia. And oh, yeah. I, I hear mm-hmm. over and over again that, that young women are diagnosed with bulimia. Most eating disorder treatment centers do not do an endocrine workup. So before you, if you're a parent listening to this, before you accept a diagnosis of bulimia, please make sure that you get a full endocrine workup in conjunction with that because eating disorder treatment is expensive. And it's not a bad thing. I worked in a center for three and a half years. But if you're treating the wrong thing, it's going to creep out from under the rug and wreak havoc in about two, three years after that huge, expensive inpatient treatment that you paid for. Um, So make sure um, that when you're, Looking at treatments that treatment centers ask if they do an endocrine workup. If they don't, make sure you have, get that done before you go in so they have that paperwork to, to work with when they're doing their treatment planning and accommodate that because oftentimes it is what's driving the eating disorder behaviors. Right, and you also, you know, and it can go the other way. There can be binge eating for carbohydrates and sweets, right? Well, right, and that and that's what is driving, that's where the PCOS is really driving the bulimia, and, and you're trying to just treat that craving with behavioral treatment, it's not going to work. Um, it really genuinely is a, a physiological phenomenon. These women have these intense sugar cravings, and moms will call me all the time and say, well, I just found these candy wrappers under my daughter's pillow. I mean, and that's when they think bulimia because that's where most of the outreach and education has been in the media. Um, but mm-hmm. these cravings can just be intense, intense. And right. they're related, uh, ironically, not to... I had no sugar. idea that was related. I, one of mine does that. I had no idea. Yeah, and okay. testosterone levels seem to be more highly correlated than insulin to that phenomenon. So um, it really is something that needs to be managed from an endocrine as well as a behavioral, but you can't do one or the You need both. You can't just pick one or the other and hope that you'll manage the entire syndrome. 
You know, it's interesting because before I even started the coffee clutch, I guess like two, two and a half years ago, um, I, I was just very curious. I was asking um, a lot of different people about um, <clears throat> their input on getting the a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, depressive disorder in very young teens. And um, I had put out a questionnaire, and, I mean, within days I had hundreds of responses. And a lot of the responses came from psychologists, psychiatrists, um, clinicians. And then I asked a follow-up question, and I said to the um, to everyone, how many of these girls have been referred out to an endocrine, endocrinologist for an evaluation? I did not get one reply. And oh, that I w- just yeah, yeah. stunned me. Yeah, well, I had same, a similar experience a few years ago. I had written personal letters to every member of the Academy of Eating Disorders, introducing myself and introducing the concept of PCOS. And of the ones who bothered to write me back, I would say most of them, and it was probably less than half, most if not all of them politely thanked me but said, I don't think I'm seeing this in my practice. Right. And you know they were because they're working with eating disorders. <laughs> but I don't right. know what right. it is if they were uninformed or they didn't want to deal with hormones because they're too complicated and they were psychologists. But I just thought how I I immediately thought of the poor woman who was going asking for help and, and expecting that person to be able to pull out and tease out what she really needed to do to feel better. Right, and that's why it's just so important that you have that type of relationship. I mean, as I said, my my one child. It was classic presentation. And then my younger one, I mean, you would never by looking at her um, think that there was an endocrine problem. But, you know, one day when I brought her in and she was talking to my older daughter's psychiatrist, he said, have you brought her for an evaluation? And I'm like, no. And he said, I think you should bring her in. And sure enough, you know, I, I mean, I didn't see it because I was still looking at the classic presentation. And also, you may have incidental findings. I mean, how common do you find, like, microadenomas and other problems with the pituitary gland with polycystic, like Radcliffe cysts? Do you find that is common? They're not nearly as common as some of the other things I was talking about. Um, and it may mm-hmm. be that that may be the driving factor that's driving the infl- inflammatory process in, in that particular situation. Um, so you've got a really unique situation. And I, I think every woman has something going on with her that is is really making it hard for the body to keep up with its own metabolic processes. That's really, in essence, what inflammation is, is something's going on that you're on a treadmill that's going increasingly faster and faster metabolically that your body can't keep up with it starts to break down. And it could be a tumor, it could be a food sensitivity, it could be um, just a process of adolescence, which is a high-stress metabolic process, tends to exacerbate. Um, Well, give us again, before you go, Monica, one more time, give us your website. um, And really, if you have a teenage daughter, even if they're not presenting, you should really take a look at this um, for in the future so that you know um, if you do see any signs, because the earlier, like everything else we deal with, early intervention is key. So, Monica, what is your, your um, website again? The website and the Twitter handle are the same. It's uh, www.incyst.com and at INSYST. And we also have a very active Facebook page. At, it's um, INSYST Programs for Women with PCOS. Okay. Monica, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I always me. love having you Oh, you're welcome, and believe me, you'll be back. <laughs> okay. Talk to you okay. Soon. Okay. You too. 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We really appreciate it. I just want to let everyone know that we had the premiere of Inspiring Parents last week, and it was amazing. You can catch that in archive. And this week we are premiering Autism as They Grow with uh, Bobby Sheehan and Amalia Starr, who will be hosting, and I hope you join them. That's Wednesday night at 9.30. Thank you for joining us, everyone.